0: Is a beauty just to stop me dead
1: And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar The Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Billy Riley from 1957 with Flying Saucer Rock and Roll. And today on the Nardwar The Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with the former Defense Minister of Canada between 1963 and 1967, Paul Hellyer, who also is a UFO expert and an expert on money. You need your money to fuel the UFOs. Paul Hellyer, live today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. And Paul's in town as part of the Modern Knowledge Tour, modernknowledge.ca, and he's going to be appearing this Sunday at the Rio Theatre at 1.30pm. More info at modernknowledge.com. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, Paul Hellier and UFOs. And to get you ready for Paul Hellier and UFOs, here's Nina Hagen with Flying Saucers on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show.
2: by Darth Vader, Lord of the Evil Galactic Empire. Lord Vader, what did you tell the princess? I just want to be your everything. And what did she say?
3: <laughs>
2: All right. Lord Vader, what is it really like being an evil creature like you? What I am is what I am. Here's the fat little robot, R2-D2. R2, if someone is attacked by Lord Vader, what should they do? Run, run, run. Two's robot friend C3PO. 3PO, we've got to get help. What are you guys going to do? We are here on the planet Tatoon where the two robots have just landed. There's Luke Skywalker. Luke, how do you like living on this planet? We'll Suddenly appearing is Ben Kenobi. Ben has a mysterious message for Luke. We are going aboard the spaceship of Han Solo to rescue the princess. Uh, Captain Solo, what could happen to you for helping these rebels? I might get rich,
0: you know, I might get busted.
2: Look, there's the Death Star. We're being pulled aboard. Luke and Solo have gone to save the princess. They're shouting at Lord Vader.
0: What you do she back?
2: Luke and Solo have rescued the princess. Chewbacca, Solo's hairy first mate, is asking her something. Do you want taking off for the rebel base which the evil governor Tarkin is about to destroy governor Tarkin why do you enjoy blowing up planets Captain Solo and the others have gotten to the rebel base in time and here come the rebel spaceships Luke is shouting something Luke has gotten through he's going to bomb the Death Star wait Luke I'm still down here help help we are here on a spaceship where Darth Vader has just kidnapped Princess Leia. Hey, Vader, what do you want to do with the princess? Just want to Here's C-3PO. C-3PO, Darth Vader is coming this way. What are you going to do? C-3PO! 3PO, 3PO. There's little R2D2. R2, what have you got to say? We are here on the planet Tatooine, where the two robots have just landed. 3PO, how did you get here? I blew out my flip flop. R2, what have you got to say? There's Luke and Ben Kenobi, and listen, the Force. We're taking off aboard the spaceship of Han Solo. Ah, Chewie, if you could talk, what would you say? You and me ain't no movie star. We've landed on the Death Star. Luke has rescued the princess. He's whispering something in her ear. I'm your handyman. R2, what have you got to say? Ooh, 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 ooh. They're taking off for the rebel base, which the evil Governor Tarkin is about to destroy. Governor Tarkin, why do you enjoy blowing up planets? Doesn't take much to make me happy. But here come the rebel spaceships. Luke is shouting something. Looks like we made it. Hey, R2, what have you got to say? Ooh, 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 ooh. Darth Vader's spaceships are attacking the rebels. But listen, the Force. I'm in. Has gotten through. He's going to bomb the Death Star. Wait, Luke, I'm still down here. Help! Help! We are here in the woods where an extraterrestrial has just been seen. Hey, E.T. What are you here for? Take this and what did you do on your own planet? I
3: was working as a waitress
2: in a cocktail bar. E.T., your neck grows and your chest lights up. How come you look so strange? Well, a bit hard on me. And how does it feel when your chest lights up? It hurts so good! Uh, one last question. What do extraterrestrials really want here? They want American music. E.T. has just been spotted by a small boy. Elliot, what do you say to a three foot high extraterrestrial? Before you take E.T. home, have you anything to tell him? I don't want no damage, but how am I gonna manage you? And what is your mom going to give you when she sees E.T.? E.T. wants to phone home, but E.T., how can you call outer space?
0: Uh, E.T. 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 E.T.'s
2: spaceship is on its way to pick him up. E.T. is shouting something. Look, Elliot and E.T. are flying on a bike to the landing spot. E.T., how do you make a bike fly? The ship has landed. The door is opening. E.T., who is that coming out of the ship? We are going aboard the spaceship. E.T. is shouting something to his crew. Take it away. Take it away. It's taking off. Wait, E.T., where are we going? Going Wait, E.T.
0: The supersonic program to bring you this message. Our flying saucers have reached Earth. Stay tuned for immediate developments. Come in, saucer 4X. Come in, saucer 4X. This is Mars. We understand you were stranded.
4: I was stranded in the jungle, afraid of old.
0: Yes, yes, tell us, what was your reaction to seeing an Earthling? I almost lost my mind. What caused this sudden fear? All it took was a casual look. Now we switch you to Saucer X2 and an on-the-spot interview with a real Earthling. Come in, X2. Come in, X2. Attention. Where is your crew, X2? Standing on the corner, watching all the girls. Spot Spot Martian. Martian, Hey, you Get there, Earthling, Earthling, stop! Come, come back, come back, come back. back. What, what is you your name? name? Nothing but a hand dogger. Tell, Tell us, us, Earthling, Earthling. What, what is, is, the, is greatest the greatest problem, problem of, of your, your people? people? Why do the fools fall in love? Love, what, what is, is this, this thing, thing called love?
5: Maybe Umgawa knows. Buwana, 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 umgawa, buwana, buwana, umgawa, buwana. There you are.
0: Well, well Earthling, Earthling, uh, uh when, when is, is the, the best, best time, time for this, this crazy, crazy thing called love? Uh, After the lights go! Thank you, Earthling. And now we switch you back upstairs to your favorite disc jockey.
6: Well, hi again, everybody. How are you? This, this is... Back, back again on back station W-E-I-R-D. Weird Mars, the number one music planet in the universe, which sounds all requestfully for you. Coming up a little bit later on, one of the greatest records of Mars times. And now, we've had thousands of requests from Earthlings asking what a Mars disc jockey looks like. I'm like a
0: cat, peeping in a seafood
7: store.
6: And now to wind up our show, here's that great, fantastic, fabulous exclusive record on the Humble label, the number one record down on earth. <laughs> we interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. This is Mars
0: sending a special message to Buchanan and
5: Goodman. So later, alligator, theater, theater?
1: And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. You just heard right there from 1956, Sid Lawrence UFO, which was the answer to the Flying Saucer song by Dickie Goodman. That I played a couple months ago. Did play some Dickie Goodman in there, but not that particular Flying Saucer part one and part two. But that was an answer record from 56, Sid Lawrence with UFO. Before that, Chairlift with Lee Flying Saucer hat. The Flying Saucer hat. And before that, Dickie Goodman with Hey E.T. Before that, Star Warts and Star Wars by Dickie Goodman from 1977. And to begin, we had Nina Hagen with Flying Saucers. All this in honor of Paul Hellyer, who is the Honorable Paul Hellyer for being the Minister of Defense and serving in the Canadian government for 23 years, 1961 plus two, i.e. 1963 to 1967. Paul was a minister of defense, and he's also an expert on money and UFOs, and he's going to be here in Vancouver... This Sunday, as part of a Modern Knowledge tour, check out ModernKnowledge.ca, and it's going to be at the Rio Theatre at 1:30 p.m. A whole bunch of exciting stuff is happening at the Modern Knowledge tour. I'm going to do an interview with Paul shortly, so if you have any UFO questions, feel free to give a call. 604. 604- 822-2487-604-UBC-CITR. Or you can also tweet me at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. Also, as I mentioned, Paul Hellyer was part of the Canadian government for many, many years. And he knows many, many, many politicians. So I thought I would play something here. A record that I got called Diefenbaker in Delta. Former Canadian Prime Minister John... G. Diefenbaker arrived in Vancouver on Friday, June 1976 to begin a two-day visit that would include the opening of a park dedicated in his honor, a luncheon, and a dedication dinner at the Town and Country Motor Inn in Delta, BC. And we're going to bring you that recording live from the Town and Country Motor Inn June 11th, 1976, John Diefenbaker in Delta. I'm sure you will enjoy this recording, which will be a permanent reminder of a great weekend. And right after that, going to play something by Tommy Douglas, CCF, NDP. Got to spread it around. So some vintage Canadian historical tidbits. And then an interview with Paul Hellier, former Canadian Defense Minister, UFO and money, money expert, all on Denard War, the Human
6: Serviette Radio Show. I would like to now call on his worship Mayor Tom Good for the official welcome. Please.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman honored guest, members of Parliament, Mr. Leon Ladner, and his former campaign manager, Mr. Howard Green, Honorable Howard Green, Delta senior citizens, and fellow liberals. (laughs) (laughs) When I was mentioned tonight, that John thought he was taking offense to me by saying that John Reynolds should be the Member of Parliament for many years, I said to my wife, I have no objection whatsoever to John Reynolds being a Member of Parliament, as long as he does not run for Mayor of Delta. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it falls upon me the honor this evening to welcome to Delta a great Canadian. But I don't think that any words that I could say here tonight would match the love and respect that the right honorable member received today by the citizens of Delta. Wherever you went with the right honorable member, old, young families stood in line to talk to him for a moment, to say a few words about relatives back in Saskatchewan, and... I don't know what makes a great Canadian but I do know this, that the man sitting next to me has whatever it takes. (laughs) However, he is a conservative (laughs) and I must take exception to one of the recent remarks that he made in Vancouver. Speaking to the Canadian club he mentioned that he was the only living former Prime Minister of Canada. However, he went on to add to those gathered there that he felt he was soon to be joined by one other. I think the only difference of opinion we might have is the time in which that person joins the ranks.
2: <laughs>
7: <laughs> Sir, it is a privilege for me as the mayor of Delta, not only have, having to serve with you for four and a half years in the House of Commons, but to welcome you on behalf of the citizens of Delta to our community. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you, Mayor, Tom Good. I would like to now call on our Member of Parliament, Mr. John Reynolds, to introduce some special guests. Please, John. Thank you, John. You can be assured, Tom, I'm not going to run for mayor, (laughs) at least for a couple of more elections. (laughs) It's my pleasure tonight to introduce a few people in the audience, and when I look around, there's so many we could introduce, but we just don't have the time, but there's some people here that I would like everybody to meet. The first man is a man who's helped us in organizing this dinner, worked untiringly helping us do it. He's a man who's been one of Mr. Diefenbaker's friends for many, many years, Mr. Lyle Jessley of Vancouver. Lyle, please stand up and take a <laughs> bow. The next man is a man who Mr. Diefenbaker spoke about last night in White Rock, and certainly I'd heard about him a lot of times before in Ottawa when I've had the pleasure of sitting in Mr. Diefenbaker's office. This man was Mr. Diefenbaker's campaign manager in Prince Albert, and he tells us that he wouldn't have been Prime Minister if it hadn't been for this man. So we owe him a great deal of gratitude. Fred Hadley, who is now living in White Rock, would you please stand up and take a bow? We have a man sitting in the audience who is a member of Parliament for Berard and Mr. Diefenbaker's administration, John Taylor. Would you please take a bow? (laughs) And lastly, we've got a man in the audience who tells me he still shoots his golf score at the same age he is. He's a member of Hockey's Hall of Fame. He was a Citizen of the Year in Vancouver in 1966. He played on the last Stanley Cup hockey winner in Vancouver. That's a long time ago. Mr. Cyclone Taylor, please take a bow. And now I'd like to call on my colleague in Ottawa, Mr. Benno Friesen, to introduce our honored guest.
7: Mr. Chairman, members of the head table, and friends, I feel uh, doubly privileged tonight to uh, have this honor because this is the second night in a row that I have the privilege of introducing our guest of honor. I first heard the name of John Diefenbaker in Roster in Saskatchewan as a young boy. When the men after the noon dinner on Sunday used to gather in the parlor. In those days, there were no such things as living rooms or dens, there were always parlors. And the men used to gather there and, and discuss politics in low German in our household, and they used to speak in some somewhat rather hushed tones, the name of John Diefenbaker.
4: There are only a few public figures in and this country in, who uh, are instantly identifiable by a single name, and one of them is Tommy, Tommy Douglas. He has been Tommy for 40 years. As a prairie preacher, as a member of Parliament, as Premier of Saskatchewan, as a member of Parliament again, and now as he retires from the leadership of the new Democratic Party as a Canadian institution. Few Canadians have been introduced more often at uh, public meetings and conferences and banquets and thousands of other gatherings, and when he's introduced by the chairman, they usually give some biographical details about him, and there's quite a lot to say about Tommy Douglas. He was born in Scotland, the son of an iron molder, came to Canada at the age of 14, lived in Winnipeg at the time of the general strike, which certainly had an effect on his social outlook. At university, Brandon College, McMaster, University of Chicago, he was a brilliant debater, a gold medalist. I am certain his sermons were a delight. He was ordained in the Baptist Church. His first call was to Weyburn, Saskatchewan, but he's been a politician for 36 years. He was first elected to the House of Commons in 1935, re-elected in 1939, and after he resigned to accept the leadership of the Saskatchewan CCF, he won in 1944, as almost everybody knows, a smashing victory. He was Premier for 16 years until he accepted the leadership of the New Democratic Party in 1961 and re-entered the House of Commons. Quite a career chairmen love to dwell on it when introducing him, and they usually sprinkle their introductions with laudatory remarks. Tommy reacts uh, to such introductions with modesty, persistently wondering with some humor what the fuss is all about. Here he is at the beginning of an important address to delegates to a meeting of the Cooperative League of the United States.
1: And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, and we have a caller on the line. Hello, are you there, caller?
8: I am indeed. Who
1: are you?
8: Oh, well, my name is Paul Heller, and I used to be a politician, and now I'm uh, trying to um, break the truth about the embargo on truth and see if we can get the truth out about a lot of things.
1: And Paul, your particular background, please could you tell the people, you're the Right Honourable Paul Hellyer. Please explain a little bit about your background. And you are coming to Vancouver this Sunday.
8: Right. It's, it's just honourable in Canada when you retire, not uh, like, Right Honourable like the UK and, um, and Australia. And I was in politics. I was first elected in 1949, which is a long time ago. And then I was appointed to the cabinet of uh, Louis Saint Laurent, Uh, eight years later, and became the youngest cabinet minister uh, at the time, uh, by a long shot, and uh, later served in the governments of uh, Trudeau and uh, at least of uh, Pearson all the way through, and a year with Trudeau. My main portfolios were the Minister of National Defense for five years and then the Minister of Transport for my final two years.
1: And right now, you're on this modern knowledge tour. What can you tell the people about that, Paul?
8: Well, it's my... my, um, opening statement, the keynote addresses are calling it, is really about the state of the world. And um, the other three speakers are primarily talking about the ufology. They're ufologists. I am not. I know a little bit about the subject now after 10 years of research. But uh, my main background is I'm uh, an economic maverick and a politician. What I'm talking about is what's going on in the world that is not good, and it's a lot. And I'm talking about the attempts in the uh, United States to introduce a new world order, which, in effect, would be uh, a fascist uh, dictatorship of the world. And I talk about the cabal. The cabal, as I understand it, is the, at the um, apex of the cabal, is the money cartel, the banking cartel. And they have a monopoly to create money. And as long as they have that monopoly, the world is doomed because they can tell us what to do, whether we're going to have jobs or whether we don't. And they put us all into debt and make debt debt slaves of us. And so I'm promoting a change in the monetary system, which has been my principal interest for a long, long time, which would give power back to the people and take power away from these uh, elites who are trying to establish uh, their own uh, dictatorial autocratic government of the world. And it has to start with the banking system, because that's where the, where the power really lies. Or I shouldn't say the, all of the power by any means, but the most power, because they have the money. And the others can't do anything without, uh, without money. Oh, then the next part of the cabal is the oil uh, cartel. And then below that, the transnational corporations, which are trying to uh, take power away from uh, governments and people, and transfer it to themselves, and that's what the trade agreements are all about. They're not really trade agreements. They're they're investment agreements, and they give powers through a a clause called the uh, disputes mechanism, the dispute settlement mechanism. They get power to um, have any disputes settled by tribunals, more or less under their control, and not by the country's courts. And so we, the people, lose total power over our own destiny and our own future. So this is a big part of it. And then the next slice below that is the, uh, the um, intelligence agencies, <clears throat> not exclusively American, but primarily. And it includes, of course, the CIA, which is one of the most tor- notorious organizations in the world, and then the FBI, the NSA, and, uh, and others, and then a huge slice of the U.S. military, That has been uh, uh, back-engineering, the uh, starting with the Roswell crashes in 1947, back-engineering the the technology that they have uh, managed to get from the uh, visitors, from other star systems, and uh, have achieved just mind-boggling results in that period of time. And uh, so this has been all kept secret. The people don't know anything about it. Even the Congress doesn't know what they've been paying for. And uh, it's just a a terrible situation where trillions of dollars have actually been spent on what they call the black budgets. And the people that put up the money don't even have a clue about it and what's going on. And then, of course, there's the global warming uh, thing. And uh, they control that, too, really, the cabal does because they own the patent for exotic uh, energy uh, uh, systems, namely uh, cold fusion and uh, zero-point energy. And the technology is there um, to transform the world before it's too late. And um, that's what I'm pushing for, is to say that we should, uh, uh, we should, in the next seven years, um, take every truck, car, car, uh, motorboat, tractor, airplane, and house in the world and transform it from an oil economy to a a clean energy economy, one of the uh, zero-point energy uh, boxes that uh, would provide all of the energy that they need if the technology exists. But the cabal is keeping it secret because, amongst other things, uh, they have the power now, and if we had this technology available to us, we'd have a lot more independence and they wouldn't. We wouldn't be so, so dependent on them for our power sources, and, uh, and uh, we would have a little independence for a change. Even worse than this, that uh, I'd only probably have a couple of lines on this. Are finally, the chemtrails and uh, the harp uh, system, which I have uh, labeled as Satan's uh, uh, illegitimate Siamese twins of death and destruction. And uh, it just boggles the mind to know what they are doing in the world today. So my address is really sort of an overview of what's going on in the world, what we have to be concerned with, and then what we have to do first if we have any chance at all of getting somebody like the President of the United States, hate him or love him, it doesn't matter. He's just got a few months when if he had a little support from both sides of the House, He might try to make a name for himself by starting what I call a a moral and spiritual revolution when they stop doing all of these terrible things, or stop some of them, and take back the power to create their own money and do some of the things to reverse the course of history, and before it's too late. So that's sort of the general thrust of of what I will be saying. The others will be talking more about UFOs, their history, uh, where they come from, uh, who they are, and all of the other aspects uh, related to the cover-up, which has been going on now for 68 years, from the first uh, Deception in uh, 1947 uh, right through to the present time.
1: Paul Hellyer, what can you tell the people about the tall whites?
8: The tall whites? They're they're a species that are working with the United States Air Force and living with them um, in the Nevada desert. They've been there for quite a long while, I understand, and uh, they've been exchanging technology with the uh, with the United States Air Force. And they uh, they have long lives, uh, six, seven, hundred years, and they levitate. They sort of just skim along the ground, uh, almost like ghosts. And uh, they're uh, they're a little nervous. But you have to approach them carefully and not. Uh, uh, let them think that you're going to harm them in any way, and if you uh, approach them gently and uh, and gently, why they won't harm you. So that's about. Uh, there's there's a book on them. About, there are several books, but the chap who really uh, worked with them <laughs> was Charles Hall, and he's written several books. I think it's uh, a Millennial Hospitality, one, two, three, and four. And I read uh, Millennial Hospitality number two, which uh, my uh, Pal and the mentor Paula Harris, who broke this story in the first place, uh, says it's probably the best one of the four.
1: Paul Hellier, the Snowden documents revealed the alien U.S. collaboration.
8: Um, if they do, and I haven't seen that, but if they do, that would be correct. Yes, there has been collaboration, and um, what we don't know is whether it's for good or for bad, and that is the reason we're pressing so hard for disclosure because uh, there are things uh, going on that uh, would lead us to believe that there's something very, very wrong going on, uh, perhaps uh, mass depopulation, for example, and these are the things we don't know about, but we are, we are given just enough information to believe that they could be true, that there could be substance to them, and we, we should know. I mean, we, we should know if there's a plan to reduce the human population uh, of the planet drastically, and why and who it's going to be, and uh, how it's being carried out, and, uh, you know, this, this is life and death for the human species, and we should know about it.
1: Paul Hellier, the aliens helped Hitler, and now they're helping the USA, and it's only two aliens that are helping the USA? How come there isn't more aliens helping the USA, and the aliens helped Hitler? How come they're not helping the Soviet Union?
8: Well, I, th- I think... Uh, I think the problem is that the the majority of the uh, of the species are benign and would like to help us, but they have to have an invitation, and the question is who's going to issue the invitation, if the power centers of uh, of the world are uh, are hostile to them, and uh, so uh, I can't really answer your question except I know that there are a lot of my friends who really hope that somehow if things continue the way they are, uh, that before the uh, world is destroyed, uh, that the uh, the benign and the friendly aliens will uh, will intervene. But uh, if and when that will happen, I don't know. I know that they're very interested in the uh, atomic question, and this is one of the things that's happened over the years. For many years, the U.S. was not particularly interested in this subject, and the number of visits to the planet was, was uh, you know, irregular. But starting in 1945 with the, uh, with the detonation of the first atomic bomb at White Sands New Mexico, the aliens became interested, very interested in uh, what we're doing because I think, and I put it this way, they, they think that the children are playing with matches and that we have the capability and probably the psychotic generals who, under certain circumstances, might uh, blow up the world and make it uninhabitable and uh, consequently of no use to us or to them. And this, uh, I think, concerns them greatly. So they have, uh, they have been going around the world making an inventory of all of the, the atomic installations, so the atomic power plants, the uh, storage facilities, and this sort of thing. And one of the things that I had mentioned in my lecture, partly because I was asked to do it, was they have on several occasions um, um, put out of operation a few of the U.S. missiles, uh, Minuteman missiles. And um, whether this was just because of the um, interference from their vehicles or not, or whether it was deliberate, um, I don't think we really know. But I'm hoping that, uh, that they have the capacity to do that and that would, would do it if they found out and they probably would find out long before we did that the, uh, there were some psychotic generals planning to try a, a first strike in the world in an effort to take, a, take it over and become absolute masters uh, of all that they surveyed.
1: And we're speaking here to Paul Hellier. Paul's in Vancouver this Sunday as part of the Modern Knowledge Tour at the Rio Theatre, modernknowledge.ca. With the aliens, Paul, you said that there's some female aliens dressing as nuns to blend in?
8: Yeah, I'm, t- I'm told that I've, like, my memory's bad, that it was as uh, nurses. But it was one or the other, or maybe both. And they went into Las Vegas to do some shopping.
1: And they're part of the tall whites, and the tall whites have teleported people to their planets to talk to them about the environment?
8: That's possible, yes. Uh, teleportation is not uh, uh, unique. It's uh, something that they seem to know what to do, how to do, and we're told that the Americans have uh, been learning this uh, trick, too, and uh, so it's, uh, it's something for the future.
1: What are the good things the aliens have developed? You mentioned Kevlar and the microchip. What are the bad things the aliens have developed?
8: Well, I don't know that you can blame it all on the aliens. I think you have to blame it on the black operations of the U.S. Armed Forces um, at the instigation of the cabal, the rich elite of the world. I, ha- I think that's where the responsibility, primary responsibility lies. And I, I, I don't know if I use this phrase in my book or not, but I think the United States sold its soul in exchange for alien technology, and uh, it's, it's there. The, the problem, I think, uh, lies there. The bad things are uh, the HARP uh, thing, for example, uh, which is underway now, and is, uh, is it's just mind-boggling in its in its possible effects against the human race, and. Uh, all kinds of weapons particle weapons uh, which um, can uh, can reduce um, steel and concrete to dust I don't know if any if you remember there was a show in my youth called Buck Rogers in the 25th century and he had what we call a disintegrator well this is a disintegrator sort of a Tesla device and uh, the way I came across it recently was in regards to 9-11 when we were looking at the, uh, what happened there. Of course, the, we know now uh, that uh, the George W. Bush administration knew uh, weeks in advance that it was going to happen, and they made absolutely no effort to, uh, to stop it. On the contrary, there appears to have been collusion on somebody's part. And uh, of the seven buildings that came down, uh, most if not all of them, had been rigged for controlled demolition. But in addition to that, and there's uh, an engineer, Dr. Judy Wood, I don't know if you've ever seen her book or not, called What Happened to the Towers. And she shows and provides 500 pages of pictures and and charts and and, uh, evidence that before the mass of those towers hit the ground, that they were reduced to dust. And uh, this is the kind of weapon they've been developing, which can be used on anybody or anything, including uh, friendly uh, UFOs, if they happen to be on the wrong side at the, uh, at the wrong time. So there, there have been a lot of developments on the military side, far more than uh, maybe on the civil side. And where we've lost out by not having uh, closer contacts with the, uh, with the really friendly or benign races is in the medicine. And we're going the wrong way as a result of the, uh, of the chemtrails and HARP. And uh, we could be going the right way and uh, finding the cures uh, necessary for many of our, uh, our major diseases and the things that uh, are uh, bothering us as, uh, as individual human beings. Instead of that, you're having increases in cancer and Alzheimer's and all sorts of things. And much of it appears, appears to be related. To the chemtrails and the poison that they're dumping on us. They're poisoning our air, they're poisoning our water, and they're poisoning the soil where we grow our food. And if you don't think this is serious, well, I really think it is.
1: And you can check out Paul. This Sunday is part of Modern Knowledge Tour, modernknowledge.ca. So you believe alien technology was used to destroy the Twin Towers? Um.
8: I wouldn't say it was, it was strictly alien knowledge, but it's, it's knowledge that the, that the cabal has, has gained by working with them uh, in the last 60 years. I
1: guess I'm in alien technology. Was alien technology used?
8: Uh, well, I, I think the answer is par- partly, probably, because been, some of these uh, weapons uh, were forecast by uh, Nikola Tesla and that um, some of the information, some of the technology really comes from what he uh, uh, said and wrote and the FBI stole when he died, but um, I think it's, it's a combination, and this would be true of some other areas as well. Lasers, for example, we were developing lasers, but then when the uh, extraterrestrial te- uh, technology came along, they were much more advanced and uh, are now capable of being used uh, in space and other areas that uh, we didn't uh, have the wherewithal to use before.
1: Was Eisenhower the only president to meet aliens?
8: Um, I don't know. Uh, The chap who is speaking tomorrow, Grant Cameron, uh, can probably answer that question. He's the only one that I know of, but... Grant Cameron, who will be uh, speaking, uh, I think, right after I do tomorrow, is the world's number one expert on what presidents knew. And he's made a study of that. And and consequently, if anybody's interested in finding out uh, why some presidents were told more than others and uh, who they are, why Grant's the man, and he'll be there tomorrow.
1: What are the alien settlements on Venus and Mars and Saturn's moon like? What are the alien settlements like?
8: Well oh, I don't know that I'm uh, there are various descriptions of them but in the, the ones in our galaxy um, appear a to be friendlier and B uh, to look more like us for example the uh, the Nordic blondes they look enough like us that they could be walking down the street and you wouldn't even notice them and some of the others uh, are more like us uh, and they're also more spiritual, which is uh, which is interesting, I think. So you have the, the nicer ones, the more benign ones, the ones who would like to help us, are the more spiritual ones. And the ones that are causing the potential trouble, I think, are sort of um, on the other side of the, uh, of the spectrum. They're what we call from the dark rather than the light.
1: What do you think about them finding a coffin and a fossilized iguana on Mars? Apparently, a coffin and fossilized iguana were found on Mars.
8: I I don't know about that, but nothing surprises me. There's no reason why they shouldn't be there, because Mars has been inhabited for a long while, and uh, rumors have it that there's a base there now, and uh, and the shuttle going back and forth.
1: We have a question here and we're speaking here to Paul Helier who's part of the Modern Knowledge Tour modernknowledge.ca appearing at the Rio Theater here in Vancouver this Sunday at 1:30 p.m. modernknowledge.ca for questions if you have for information if you have any questions for Paul it's 604 822 604 and you can also tweet me at @nardwar N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. and I do have a tweet question for you Paul it's from The Crazy P-Man, and he wonders, are we the real aliens?
8: Well, I guess it depends how you look at it. Um, I, I can't answer that question because where we came from is uh, is problematical. And there are several, uh, two or three species who claim that uh, they had some uh, part in our origin, but uh, that's uh, beyond my knowledge, and, uh, and consequently I shouldn't be commenting about it.
1: Do you believe that we actually landed on the moon? Because some people say we never landed on the moon.
8: I don't believe that, no. I, I would be inclined to believe, though, that the uh, the series uh, might have been interrupted by somebody from other realms telling us to get lost. But I think whatever that was has been uh, patched up and that there have, probably our people are back on the moon now.
1: How about the International Space Station? Some people have also said, who are these people? Some people have said that the International Space Station is a doomsday machine ready to obliterate the planet. What do you think about that, Paul Hellyer?
8: I don't think, I don't know anything about it, and I, I doubt that very, uh, very much. Um, I think if you want to look at a doomsday machine, you look at, uh, at the HARP and what it's doing and what it's intended to do.
1: What can you tell the people, Paul Hillier, about Travis Walton and Jim Sparks? These are two people that you interviewed, right?
8: That's correct, yes. Well, I interviewed them both at great length. I interviewed Travis Walton for about, well, when I say interviewed him, I interviewed him for probably three or four hours. But also I spent a weekend with him at Las Las Vegas. I was out there for a conference, and uh, uh, Travis just happened to live not too far away and uh, I was introduced to him by a a former uh, member of the United States Navy who had been in contact with me, and uh, so uh, he agreed to come over to the conference with his wife, and I spent a lot of time with him, and I was absolutely convinced by the uh, end of the three days, or even well before the end of the three days, that he was legitimate in telling the truth. And uh, so... Jim Sparks is a very interesting case. I also inter- interviewed him at that time for probably about three hours, and we've been in touch since. And he was someone who had been uh, had been abducted more often than just about anybody in the in the uh, knowledge of the ufologists, and um, he had learned to learn the language presumably of the Greys which uh, is something that I haven't heard about anybody else who's been uh, abducted. And uh, he, uh, he finally asked to meet with some of them, and uh, I think he wound up meeting with, uh, with some of the reptilians, one of the branches of the reptilians, on Earth, and they were... Saying what a mess we were making of our planet, we were destroying it. We were cutting, clear-cutting the forests, and uh, we were uh, open mine, open pit mining, and doing all sorts of things which were bad for the planet, and uh, that we had to change our ways. And then we got into the question of uh, all of the things that have been going on in the intervening years, and they admitted that some very bad things had happened, but said it wasn't them that had done it. It was the members of the Cabal, members of the United States Armed Forces, who allegedly had uh, caused accidents for people who started talking and that sort of thing. And so they recommended to uh, Jim Sparks, and he put it in his book, that we should have an investigation, we should have um, disclosure but that the uh, National Security Act of 1947 should be either rescinded or put on hold so that the uh, people coming forward to give testimony would do it freely and not hold back uh, because they wouldn't be subject to prosecution if they had committed uh, some crimes during the course of their careers, which uh, had been covered up and which were not in the the public domain. And so he allowed me to... uh, to take this section of the of his book, it was just a few pages, but it was absolutely wonderful reading, and I put it in both of my books. I put it in Light at the End of a Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species, which was published about four or five years ago, and which was the first time that I had included anything about the extraterrestrial uh, world. I had one chapter on it there, and uh, told how I got in the business, and uh, about some of the people I had met. Uh, like uh, Edgar Mitchell, uh, Apollo astronaut, and uh, Shirley MacLaine, and uh, and the Prince of uh, Liechtenstein, and so on. Uh, And also, uh, in that, uh, later at the end of that chapter, I, I quoted Sparks, and then I moved that verbatim to my latest book, which is The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis. And that is really the one I'm talking about now. And it's sort of a a uh, bird's-eye view of some of the major points in the, that book that I'll be talking about on Sunday, the, the, the crisis aspect of things and what's gone wrong and uh, about the Operation Paperclip and the German scientists coming in at the end of uh, World War II and, and how things have deteriorated and the uh, military has, in my opinion, gone off on the wrong route and is... Uh, instead of protecting the people that it's supposed to protect and who pay their salaries, uh, I think they have more to be feared, both by the people of the United States and the world, than uh, just about anybody.
1: And you are Paul Hellyer coming to Vancouver this Sunday as part of the Modern Knowledge Tour, modernknowledge.ca. You also were Minister of Defence, and I think this is right, 1963 to 1967 in Canada, which would place you as Minister of Defence, Honourable Paul Hellyer, during the Kennedy assassination. Where were you on December 22, 1963? The Defence Minister of Canada. Where were you? I was
8: in Toronto, uh, representing the government of Canada at the funeral of the mayor of Toronto. And um, my assistant uh, Bill Lee, during the course of the uh, service, came in and knelt down at the end of the pew where I was and uh, said, Hey, boss, uh, bad news, the president of the United States has been shot. And then he went back outside, and uh, a few minutes later he came back and I chief the, the uh, president of the United States has been killed, and that's where I was. And I, of course, could never, ever forget it.
1: Were you on standby at all?
8: On standby.
1: In other words, were you ready to be rushed to a secret bunk or anything? Like it must have been a very uncertain time. You're the minister of defense of Canada. Did you offer any assistance? Did you think that something was going on?
8: No, I never. I never worried about that. I. I Maybe should have, but I didn't, and uh, I didn't, I don't know if I even knew about the Bunker, which I didn't have the opportunity to to visit until a few years ago. And it was an amazing place, which had been built by uh, Army engineers, Colonel Churchill in particular, and uh, a big vault down there for the Bank of Canada to store its gold, and and they showed me the room that I would have had as Minister of Defense if, uh, in case of a, an atomic attack. And uh, it, was, uh, it was fine, except I think the bed was a little short for a person of my height. But it was, it was a fascinating installation, and of course, uh, totally invisible from the, uh, from the road or from the air, so that uh, it would be undetected. And very, very few people knew about it, uh, I guess, including myself.
1: You met Kennedy also at a NATO meeting.
8: Well, I met him uh, a couple of times. Once um, when he was in in Ottawa, and then once when we were visiting down there. I guess I must have been in opposition at the time, and uh, an exchange. One of these exchange uh, things where people come from uh, from Canada to uh, to the states to work with the. Uh, congressman uh, for a couple of days and then go off and have fun for a day. And we were touring the White House, and, and Kennedy gave us the tour personally. And we were downstairs, and, um, and it came, came time to go up to the Oval Office to take a look around there. And it was interesting because there's a tiny little elevator that uh, FDR had uh, built when he was president because he, as you know, uh, used a wheelchair. So I'm in a little elevator, and uh, Ken, President Kennedy said to my wife, who was a very good-looking woman, you come with me, Mrs. Hellyer, and the rest of you will have to climb the stairs.
1: Ba-boom! And we're speaking here to Paul Hellier, former Canadian Minister of Defense, 1963 to 1967, also part of the Modern Knowledge Tour, modernknowledge.ca, which is appearing in Vancouver this Sunday. For aliens, are aliens stealing our DNA? You mentioned the tall whites are amongst us helping the U.S. government. Are they stealing our DNA? I
8: have no idea. About that sort of thing, because um, so much is going on in the genetics area of genetics and um, and genetic genetic engineering. Um, I, I just it boggles the mind, and I I really don't want to get into that because I'm not an expert. And whether who is contributing and who is uh, stealing uh, and who is just uh, re-engineering. I don't know, but these are all reasons why we've got to get some honesty out of our politicians and our, and our military leaders and get some questions answered before we wind up uh, in a situation that is beyond control, whether it's the uh, temperature of our planet or the uh, amount of sickness resulting from the poisons that they're dumping on us.
1: Sasquatches have had a hard time being identified because people say it's hard to find Sasquatch feces. It's hard to find Sasquatch feces. Some has been found, but it's hard to find. How about for aliens, in your knowledge, from what you've read, has anybody found alien shit? (laughs) Uh,
8: I don't think so. I know quite a few people that uh, claim to have... uh, uh, encountered sasquatch. Uh, One, I I think, uh, I don't know where you draw the line and how tall they are, but one of my uh, friends was in uh, South America recently and they went into the forest and and encountered uh, an alien, they knew this was part of the deal, who was about nine feet tall. But whether that uh, qualifies uh, Am Sasquatch or not? I really couldn't say. and uh, So I would have to consult. Even then, I probably wouldn't know for sure.
1: Paul Hellier, what happened on Jekyll Island? Jekyll Island, J.P. Morgan. How greedy are Goldman Sachs?
8: Well, they weren't there, but their predecessors were. And uh, the reason for Jekyll Island was that, um, I guess, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds Decided that rather than competing for the American pie, it would be better to work together, and uh, then they wouldn't have to uh, cut prices or try to uh, outdo the other side of the equation. So uh, they Morgan arranged this uh, private uh, meeting, a clandestine meeting, uh, at his uh, island retreat, and. uh, They put together the framework of what became the Federal, I forget the name of the bill, but the Federal Reserve System. And uh, it was really done for the benefit of the four or five uh, richest bankers in the world who controlled, I forget the percentage, but, you know, something like 40 or 50 percent of the world's assets at the time. And uh, they had a little trouble getting it through Congress because they had to change the name once or twice. And uh, finally they got it through about 101 years ago when, uh, just before Christmas, when I guess the congressmen were thinking more of uh, sugarplum fairies than they were of looking after their people's rights. And, uh, you know, the only one or two people uh, objected at the time. Uh, Lindbergh was one of them. And he just said this is wrong, period, and he was right when he said it was wrong. It was probably the worst mistake or one of the worst mistakes that a Congress has ever made because they transferred over lock, stock, and borrow the people's right to create their own money because the people have the sovereignty and they have the right to create money. But all of a sudden they gave away that right to the richest bankers in the world and let them create the money. And uh, that, of course, is part of what's been going on for the 300 years or so since the Bank of England was uh, first incorporated to satisfy the the, uh, needs of uh, William of Orange. And uh, it has cost the the American people trillions trillions of dollars because if they kept either their whole rights or part of the rights uh, to themselves and used them creatively, as we did in Canada for Since uh, from 1939 to 1974, they wouldn't have $16 trillion in debt now and have to spend weeks or months arguing about increasing it a little bit every year or so because there wouldn't have been any. And it's only because they allowed the private bankers to uh, create the money that, um, that they have that problem, and it's the only reason we're in trouble, too. One of the reasons for the name of my book, The Money Mafia, is because, as you know, there's an investigation going on in Montreal about allegedly a branch of the Sicilian uh, mafia taking a two or two and a half percent off the top of the construction contracts. This costs the taxpayers a lot of money. But look at the banking cartel now; they can invest five million dollars and leverage it into a hundred million dollars in loans all that money created out of thin air, just computer entries that have to be repaid with interest. So in effect, they're taking 95% off the top. And there's just nothing like it in the whole world. It's grand larceny. And until it ends, we, the people of the world, are going to be in the kind of trouble we've been in the 1930s and then during the recessions of 81-82 and uh, 1991 and the long recession we're still in. And... uh, it's, it's just absolutely amazing that they could get away with that kind of nonsense for as long as they have. We had a, a different system in Canada. Going back to uh, my earlier days in 1938, there were no, there were no jobs in Canada, none. And along comes the war, and uh, pretty soon everyone's working, either in the armed forces or building uh, factories or uh, making munitions and unemployment went down to a historic low of 1%. I'm not advocating trying to duplicate that, but we could at least cut our present uh, unemployment rate in half in two years if we would do something like we were doing then. And you may ask where the money came from for the government to pay all the servicemen and uh, pay for the munitions, and the answer is that the Bank of Canada printed it, P R I N T E D and I don't know if you've got time to listen to how the thing worked or not, but the government of Canada would give the Bank of Canada a bond, and uh, the Bank of Canada would just print the money to buy the bond. And then the government of Canada would pay interest on the bond, but the Bank of Canada would give it back as dividends, because we, the people, own the bank. And so the net cost to us was near zero, just the cost of administration deducted and the money that was created was of course wound up in the private banks where they leveraged it up uh, eight and a half times uh, to uh, help finance the war and uh, to help finance people who wanted to buy war bonds and so on well this is a system in effect the, the money creation system was shared between the bank, between the people directly with the Bank of Canada and the private banks and it worked absolutely beautifully it got us out of the depression help finance the war, and then uh, help finance the post-war reconstruction, help finance the St. Lawrence Seaway, the Trans-Canada Highway, the great new uh, airport terminals, and uh, then help install our wonderful Social Security system, which was the enemy of the world for a long while. And all of these things, through until 1974, when Gerald Bowie, the governor, decided to... uh, to start uh, cooperating with, and that's another way of taking his orders from the Bank for International Settlements in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, which was really the apex, sort of the brain center of the money mafia, which is the most powerful bankers of the world that we've been talking about, and uh, and the uh, central banks that they owned or controlled. So we really gave up, and as a result of that, we had to start uh, borrowing our money in the market. And during the recession of 81-82, we paid as much as 22% for it, and under the old system, we wouldn't have had to borrow at all. And that was what got us in the present trouble, because we'd run a deficit during the recessions, then it was rolled over into debt, and at 20%, the debt doubled every four years, and pretty soon we were spending far, far, far too much of our tax money paying interest on debt instead of building public transportation systems and improving our health system and doing all of the other wonderful things that we really have uh, waiting to do. So as a result of changing the system, I I hardly could believe this. Ellen Brown, who wrote Web of Debt, which is one of the wonderful books on money, uh, told me one day that... uh, We paid a trillion dollars in interest. I said, Ellen, you're kidding me. So I still have rights at the Parliamentary uh, Library, so I asked them to work it out for me. And they said from uh, 1974-5 fiscal year to 2010-11, we paid $1,100,000,000,000 in interest that we didn't need to do. Now imagine what we could do if we had a trillion dollars to spend to start fixing up the things that we haven't done and the things that are falling apart. And it's still going on because a huge chunk of our income taxes goes to pay this interest. And we've tried to get the government to change the system, and a group of uh, economic mavericks and uh, some legitimate economists have, have put in propositions, and it's the same one that I have in my book as a recommendation that we do now, we go back to uh, something similar to the old system, and that the governments uh, create 34% of all the new money created, and this would be enough to finance uh, uh, federal, provincial, and municipal governments without any borrowing, period. And uh, also, if we introduced it over a seven-year period, which I'm recommending in my book, We'd, be, uh, we'd have enough surplus to uh, pay down the federal debt by at least uh, 35%, something like that. And they will not even take time out to study it uh, at all, really. So that uh, tells you something about the kind of government we're getting right throughout the g 20 It's not just the Canada and the United States, but the g 20 have spent nearly all of their time uh, patching up this old, rotten system that uh, got us in so much trouble instead of... Uh, Saying there's something really rotten in the state of whatever, and uh, we've got to change the uh, the system fundamentally once and for all, cut the head off the serpent that's uh, that is the monetary system, and uh, and give uh, give the people a break.
1: And you are Paul Hellier appearing this Sunday as part of a Modern Knowledge tour, ModernKnowledge.ca. Paul, when you were Minister of Defence for Canada. What do you think was being covered up when you were Minister of Defense? What was being covered up? And are there any secrets that you were privy to back then that you can now disclose?
8: Well, the, the only secret that was covered up at that time uh, was the uh, uh, UFO uh, phenomenon. I got uh, sighting reports. Um, and they turned out to be very similar to the ones that the, uh, they got in the U.K., that of uh, of 100 reports, about 80 turned out to be natural phenomena, and the other 20 were legitimate uh, UFOs. One, I mean that in the literal sense of unidentified flying objects. And uh, I was too busy at the time to worry about it. But um, as far as uh, as what the United States government was doing, uh, that information was not uh, made uh, public to, not made available to me. Even though uh, one of the Canadian pioneers in the business had been uh, uh, an employee of the Department of Transport, which I later headed, the name was Wil- Wilbert Smith, and he had uh, very early on, back I think in about 1950, picked up information in Washington from the embassy when he was down there, and uh, came back and wrote a top-secret memo to his boss it said, uh, I can remember most of the things that first of all, UFOs were real. Uh, second, that uh, the matter was taken very seriously by the United States government. Thirdly, that it was classified more highly than the hydrogen bomb, if you can believe that, I can, by what's happened in the intervening 68 years. And uh, finally, that uh, a group under Dr. Vannevar Bush, one of the world's top scientists at the time, was trying to uh, figure out uh, their met- method of propulsion because they didn't have any any places for carrying uh, coal, wood or oil or anything else uh, in the normal sense we would have needed for propulsion and obviously it was something entirely new, and they had to start studying it, which in fact they did and have uh, studied it ever since. Uh, And as I said earlier, I've achieved mind-boggling results.
1: How many embassies did you travel to? Were there any tools you used to search for bugs at all? I'm talking about the sinister side of going to these embassies and stuff around the world.
8: I'm sorry about that. How
1: many embassies did you travel to, Paul Hellyer, when you were Minister of Defence? Were there any tools you used to search for bugs so nobody was listening to you?
8: No, not at the time... uh um, I was very busy, and it was only after I left the government that uh, I toured, um, I think it was 26 countries, and talked to the uh, ministers of finance and the governors of the banks, of uh, central banks, and all those places, before I wrote my first book in 1971 called Agenda, Plan for Action. And I've been writing books uh, more or less uh, every once in a while ever since. The Money Mafia, uh, World in Crisis, is my 14th. I did not intend to write it because I thought that uh, right at the end of the tunnel, survival plan for the human species uh, four years earlier was all I had to say. Um, And then so much information came in after that um, that it was just mind-boggling. The stuff just kept pouring in from around the world. And then I was one of the witnesses at the Citizens uh, Disclosure Hearing in Washington uh, two years ago next month, and we were providing evidence to six former congresspeople, and none of them knew anything about UFOs. They were all skeptics, and none of them knew that they had been financing it to the tune of, you know, trillions of dollars, let alone even hundreds of billions. and. We had, I think, 40 witnesses there who spent five days, and you could, we picked them off one at a time during those five days, and the final holdout surrendered uh, on the Friday, uh, which is the day that I uh, spoke, and they gave me double time, and by then, everything about UFOs that you could think of had been said, so uh, in addition to it, describing, answering a couple of easy questions like where did some of the species come from and so on that hadn't been answered. I went through this, what I've largely been talking about this afternoon, in very brief terms, that the cabal was in charge of the United States and that um, gave a rough idea of who it was and uh, that they had been doing these these things. over the years, that were unknown. And um, so, I was so I was so overwhelmed with the fact that there was so much, so much naivety that even though what I said went viral when it was put on YouTube, this just made me all the more interested in wanting to try and get information out there on the subjects on which they were so naive and so much in the dark. And that was the reason that I wrote The Money Mafia, and, uh, and a lot of them now are, are thanking me for uh, putting more information in, you know, in a form and in the, to the extent that they can really look at it uh, uh, in greater depth than you can do in a, in a speech or, or just uh, through conversation.
1: And people can check you out on Sunday in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada as part of the Modern Knowledge Tour. Winding up here with Paul Hellier. We're speaking here to Paul Hellier, former Canadian, the Honourable Paul Hellier, former Canadian Minister of Defence. From all your travels and doing stuff with meeting different politicians and stuff, what other politicians have seen UFOs? Has Stephen Harper seen a UFO? Has Trudeau seen a UFO? You have met Jimmy Carter, I think. He's seen a UFO, right? He's
8: Ill- I know of yes.
1: What other USA politicians do you still keep in touch with?
8: Uh, very few. I guess they don't want to talk to me, but maybe they're too busy. I think give them the benefit of it out.
1: In Paul Martin Senior's book, he mentions how anti-war protesters held up signs to you and him that said "Paul, the Pentagon puppet." And then there was kids that would sing along, Hellier, Martin, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Do you remember those incidents?
8: Vaguely, yes. I'm trying to forget them.
1: That was in Victoria. What was that all about? That was the Vietnam War?
8: Uh, No, that was, I think it was, uh, it was probably before, because we didn't participate in the war, and uh, I know Robert McNamara was hoping uh, that we would, and he twisted my arm to the extent that he could, but uh, I said no, and I knew that my boss, uh, Mike Pearson, would say no, and so we never even uh, presented it to Cabinet as an option. But, um, no, I think it was probably because um, there was a time when uh, I felt that the fact that the conservative government had bought um, weapons that required uh, nuclear warheads and had made a commitment to the Atlantic Union that, uh, that we would uh, arm them, that we were in default, and that we should uh, live up to our commitment and then uh, negotiate new ones later, which is what actually happened. And during the, that time, when of course our position was publicly known, it, it was not the popular one uh, with a lot of people, and so they exercised their, uh, their legitimate rights to protest.
1: One thing I was wondering about, Paul Hellier: did you ever meet Gerda Muntzinger or Igor Gizunko or Herbert Norman?
8: Um, no, I don't think, um, uh, I don't think I met any of those three that I can remember. I, I of course, I knew, uh, the ministers of defense who were allegedly, uh, enticed or attracted a little bit, but, um... And uh, Herbert Norman, I knew quite a bit about him, studied quite a bit about him, but um, never met him.
1: Do you think he was murdered?
8: Um, I don't know. The way things develop, I, I just I don't rule I don't rule anything out. I don't say that I think something happened if I have no proof whatsoever, but I don't rule out the possibility. And I think. Uh, You know, this would be probably true with uh, with the Secretary of the Navy in the United States in the early days uh, after the UFO uh, business started.
1: What do you think about USA influence on Canada, Paul Hellier? For instance, Trudeau and the War Measures Act. Do you think the USA said, you better bring out the troops or we will?
8: I think think, um, Trudeau really tried to stand up for Canada and uh, he was on the American blacklist. So I think he was, uh, he was a bit of a Canadian nationalist, and one of the last ones, actually. Um, but um, we, we, uh, I think, unfortunately, we have regressed in many ways. Before World War II, we were primarily an agrarian uh, society and exported our natural resources and so on, Particular, but others uh, as well had a good team. Then we became quite a significant uh, country, and we were probably number four in contributing to the uh, to the effort, the war effort. And um, so we we exited the war a balanced economy, manufacturing and uh, as well as uh, resources and uh, so on. And uh, then starting, I guess, with for Canadian. Uh, Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, when we started uh, opening up our borders to the sale of all of our assets and uh, industries, we have been uh, going down the other way, and we're becoming an agrarian resource-type economy again. And, uh, you know, when Tim Hortons goes, and would you believe that the uh, wheat board, holy mackerel, if there was anything that was more Canadian than the, than the wheat board, I don't know what it would be. And uh, so all of a sudden it's gone into uh, foreign hands. And as far as the portfolio is concerned, I remember you know back a uh, few decades, shares of investing shares for some of my friends and relatives in, uh, in nickel and, uh, and the uh, steel companies. And uh, McMillan Bloedel, and other huge Canadian, Elcan, uh, all of these companies—they're all gone. And so we're just—we're uh, just sliding back. And not only are we sliding back, I think we're—we're we're really almost a colony again. And we—and I would say that we and the United Kingdom are virtual colonies of the United States. And uh, frankly, uh, this doesn't please me a lot.
1: Why didn't you beat Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Paul Hellier? You ran against Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Why didn't you beat Pierre Elliott Trudeau?
8: Why did I... Did you say why did I leave him?
1: Why didn't you beat him? Like, you were competing against him, right? For the leadership of the Liberal Party? Yeah. How come you didn't defeat Trudeau? How come you didn't win the leadership?
8: Because I I read my speech. It's as simple as that. It needs elaboration, but... Um, if I hadn't read my speech, and lost, I think about 230 votes during the first ballot as a result of it, and consequently, falling uh, six or eight votes behind Robert Winters, he became number two, and then of course uh, uh, he finished up uh, just below Trudeau. But there was a there were polls taken at the time which were interesting, which showed that there were more people who did not want winners than did not want Trudeau. There were polls, the poll, same polls showed that there were more people who did not want Trudeau than who did not want me. So if the final ballot had been between Trudeau and myself, I would have probably won by 30 or 40 votes. But it wasn't. And that really went back to the fact that I read my speech, which I should never have done, put people to sleep, and. I met person after person going up for the second ballot, said, well, Paul, we voted uh, for someone else. Uh, It was the Minister of Agriculture. Oh, yeah, Green was his name. Made a a Lincoln-esque speech and just sort of swept the whole audience, and he picked up about a lot of my first ballot votes, and I just never got them back again. So that's what happened. But I'm a a realist and... uh, And so, as far as I was concerned, uh, that's the way it was meant to be. And maybe what I'm doing now is what I was really intended to do, so I'm taking it to doing what I can even... In my senior years.
1: Well, indeed, you have one in the end. I mean, rest in peace, Pierre Elliott Trudeau and you, Paul Hellier, still rocking at ninety-one years of age. Thank you so much for phoning into the to Human Serviette Radio Show. You are in Vancouver this Sunday as part of no- modernknowledge.ca. modern knowledge dot Anything else you want to tell to people at all about modernknowledge.ca. This Sunday, one thirty PM at the Rio. If people want more info, modern Why should people care, Paul Hellier? Why should people care?
8: Because it's their lives, and more important, in my opinion, the lives of their children, their grandchildren, and in my case, and in some of theirs, their great grandchildren. And if they care a hoot about them, they come out and find out what's going on, and then see if there's something they should try to do about it.
1: Paul Hillier, where did you get your white captain's hat?
8: Where did I get it? Yeah. Well, oh, it's the trademark. From uh, we have a little lodge, had a little lodge in uh, Muskoka, and of course I had captain my own boat. <laughs> so, uh, and, and to be honest with you, it was the only kind of a hat that looked half decent on me.
1: Well, right now we're going to end with the be Cannon Brothers with when you see those flying saucers. Thanks so much for phoning in to the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show, Paul Hell- Hellier. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all?
8: No, I think so. I think uh, not. You. Even- You've mentioned several times the place where it's going to be on Sunday. And it's, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn um, a lot of things that most people don't know, don't have access to. And the problem is if you don't find out and just let it go, the results are going to be disastrous. And you'll be in the unfortunate position of saying, well, if only we had done something, maybe things would have turned out differently.
1: Well, thanks much, Paul Hellyer, former Canadian Minister of Defence, 1963 to 1967. Keep on rockin' in the free world, and do 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 loot do That uh.
5: You better pray to the Lord When you see those flying saucers It may be the coming of the Judgment Day Double act.